Hello, you're about to enjoy an audio recording from the audio library of Classical Academic Press and Inside Classical Education. More resources can be found on the web at classicalacademicpress.com and insideclassicaled.com. Welcome to the seminar, which is the lighter side of education. Uh, we're hoping to find a little bit of relief and a little bit of uh, relaxation and a little bit of lightheartedness and maybe even something like joy. Uh, that's a lot to try to serve up in a, a 60 minute seminar. But you know, you are here uh, because you perceive at some level that what you do as homeschoolers should be characterized by joy. And if there is no joy, we know that something is awry. Uh, because we are called to joy. In the book of Galatians, Paul asked the Galatians at one point in chapter 4, what has happened to all your joy? You probably began this enterprise with, uh, with joy. Joy characterizing uh, what it was that you were seeking to accomplish and do. Uh, and that was essentially the formation of the souls of your children. Um, are we okay here? Okay, fine. Okay, fine. I get nervous when people are at my feet uh, with wires. <laughs> so, uh, joy had to be a part of what you were doing. In fact, uh, if you were at my intellectual seminars, uh, intellectual uh, virtue seminar, uh, I quoted uh, uh, Sertelange, who said that uh, really the education and, and, and the, the entrance into a life of seeking after truth, a life of the mind, begins with a moment of ecstasy. And he means by that when we're caught up by a vision of something very beautiful that lifts us up out of ourselves so that we transcend our own humanity and our own, our own concerns of the day and the week and the month. And we're caught up with, to pursue something that is beautiful outside of ourselves. That's the beginning of a life of the mind and a life of seeking truth. Ecstasy, which means to be lifted, you have your feet, your, your foot freed. So I bet if you go back to the beginning, and some of you are just beginning, there was a kind of ecstasy that characterized what you were going to embark upon. Isn't that true? And there was uh, something within you welling up saying, this is right, this is beautiful, and it captured you the way great art captures you as well. Um, if that didn't happen, you're going to have problems. Because it's that vision that must propel you forward. That vision uh, of something beautiful and great outside of yourself, even though you're intimately involved with it. And if you don't have this kind of joy, um, well, let me put it this way, if you started with this kind of joy, it is easy to lose it. It's easy to be distracted by those things that are not profoundly important. To, to lose our first love. To lose that which must be first. You think of the story of Mary and Martha. And uh, was it Mary who was, uh, Martha was very, very busy. And Mary who sat at, you know, at Jesus' feet. And her sister got a little bit upset that, that uh, Mary was sitting there uh, enjoying conversation, perhaps after dinner, with, with, with Jesus. And Martha's doing all the cleanup and all the work, and she confronts her sister. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're busy about many things, but Mary has chosen what is best. Ah, 
there are dishes to be done, there is laundry to be done, there are errands to be done, there are bills to be paid, there's house repairs to be done. How many of you have an old house and you know the, the list just continues to grow? It doesn't matter. You get one thing done, there's two things that appear. There's always something to do. But what is the most important thing? And isn't those isn't it those things that actually uh, are the core of our joy? Okay, uh, this is a difficult subject, so I, I am. I want to say at the beginning, I'm not going to be able to throw out any magic pills. I'm not going to be able to give you some uh, Gnostic knowledge that's uh, going to enlighten you and illuminate you, and you'll realize that now with this new enlightenment, everything will just become fine. Uh, but I will say that it is our calling to maintain our joy. And it is uh, our calling to see beauty, goodness, and truth, and to help our, our, our children to do the same. So, as we're going through this seminar, I hope that many of you will take down some written notes and some mental notes and be prepared to, to uh, ask some questions, but even more importantly, to share your own stories about how you have maintained rest, relaxation, lightness, and yes, even joy in your, in your experience as a homeschooling parent. Some of you have learned how to do this in some really wonderful ways. Some of you have learned along the way some, some things that you should share with some today. Um, I am not an expert on this subject in terms of my success and personal experience. I just know that it is an important area because I struggle with it, others struggle with it, and I think it needs to be addressed and it needs to be on the forefront of our minds on a weekly basis. I posted this question because I needed help uh, from people more experienced and successful than me in this area on the Well-Trained Mind Forum. And in one day I got 24 responses from some mature uh, homeschool moms who posted some of their ideas. I'll share some of those with you. But you have some uh, wisdom too that you want to share with the group today. Alright? Oh, by the way, uh, if you want my notes, feel free to email me at this address. I'll be happy to send you my notes. So if you're f writing furiously or you, you, you would rather just stop writing and have me send you what's in front of me, I'd be happy to do that. Thomas Aquinas said that uh, the highest calling of our life as, as human beings is to pursue what he called a vita contempla vita, uh, the, a contemplative life. And our, our forebears have said that there's two ways we can think of our, our minds. One is what we call, they called ratio, which is the discursive mind, which is running to and fro, doing research, thinking, trying to gather facts and knowledge. And there's another kind, which is intellectus, which means to be receptive to uh, beauty and truth. It's kind of one's a, an, an active mind that's out there researching, and another is that part of us that wants to gaze and receive. Um, which mind characterizes your life most of the time? Uh, discursive means running to and fro. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I tend to run to and fro most of the time, like Martha, and not find time to gaze and to think, and to reflect, to, to give time to digest uh, important concepts and experiences and ideas. Um, in other words, another anal analogy would be what kind of meals do you have? Are they always on the go? Or do you have reflective, uh, leisurely meals where you can talk about the day, where you can check in with one another, 
and not feel uh, distracted because you know that in five minutes you have to rush on to the next activity. Um, just as our families need this kind of time, so do our inner person, so do our minds need time to reflect and contemplate and gaze. Aristotle called that theoria, the contemplative life, that life which was thinking and gazing and reflecting, and the Greeks would say philosophizing. Do we philosophize? <laughs> You're coming to a homeschool seminar and immediately he's talking about philosophizing. Uh, and was that supposed to be restful? Yes, because in the ancient tradition, philosophizing took time. It was, you, 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 things don't become permanent. A part of our, our inner mental and soulish structure until we can reflect on them over time and discuss them. So sometimes we don't need to accelerate, accelerate, accelerate. We need to deepen and slow down. Are we finding that kind of time as well? Um, I want to cite a book for you. Um, so, some of you, by the way, I'll, I'll apologize again ahead of time. Uh, forgive me if I become too abstract. That is a, a fault of mine. Uh, that's why I'm asking you to give me better concrete applications than even I can. And I'm going to give you a book that some of you may think is kind of, again, abstract and philosophical for a seminar that needs to be practical. But you know, philosophy is very practical. Uh, we always have to connect our practices to deep thinking and reflection. And I think we need to learn from uh, any wisdom that is around us and the wisdom that's come before us. This book by Joseph Pieper is called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And if you want to go deeper into the, the, the tradition and philosophy of what it means to be at rest, mentally and otherwise, to pursue this contemplative life, um, you want to read this book. It's about 180 pages, but it will take you probably a couple of weeks to work through because it's dense. It's like drinking honey. Uh, so take your time with it, but it will acquaint you with something. Uh, I'll try to be as practical as I can, but we cannot divorce the philosophical from the practical. Ideas do have consequences. Do you know where the word, we get the word school from a Greek word. Does anyone know the Greek word from, from which we derive school? Um, that means you need to read this book. It's, the Greek word is skole. Skole comes from a tradition that goes back 2,000 years. Skole means leisure. The, are, are the, the, the ancients realized that you could not have a full education without time. You cannot have a full education without being at liberty to have conversation, reflection, discussion. This was just considered to be paramount. In America, we run to and fro. We want everything quickly. We want everything uh, as fast as we can. We're always looking for shortcuts and abbreviations. We want to accelerate our kids. We want them to skip grades, skip things, and move on. But nothing good comes without the time that it's going to take. Okay. Anybody, anybody else realize this is not the seminar for you? Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, it always happens when I give these talks that there's others who realize it's not what you came for. And I, I again, I, I don't, I don't fault you. So go ahead and leave. It's not what you were thinking. <laughs> I, I do, I do promise to get more practical. But uh, I'm not offended at all when you realize it. Well, this isn't what I was hoping for or thinking I was going to get. Um, but we. We, um, leisure is the basis for culture. Why is that? Because it's only when we're at leisure that we celebrate. And when we celebrate, we're worshiping. 
And when we're worshiping, we're building a cult. And that's the basis of culture. It's what we really admire, what we really extol, what really gives, uh, gives, fulfills our humanity and our souls. What is it that gives you joy? What is it that you're looking forward to this month? Is it sitting down and going through math, the math lessons with your child? Is it, uh, is, it, is it planning your next series of lessons? What is it that you're really looking forward to when you put your head on the pillow? Isn't it those things that you celebrate? What is it that you celebrate? And it's when we're at leisure, when we don't have to do the work that's necessary and important and godly to, to, to make things happen in our lives, that's when we're, we're, we're finding our, the highest expression of our humanity. It's, it's the dinner table. It's the dinner parties. It's your vacations. It's what you do when you're told suddenly, guess what? You've got two days off. What if someone sent you a gift certificate and said, you and your husband can take off for the weekend and we're taking care of the kids? What would you do? What would you talk about? Where would you visit? Well, that's an impossibility. <laughs> These are the things that you really live for. And these are the things that you want even your children to be able to enjoy. What is better than a great conversation, great meal, and a great location with your best friends who have been studying and thinking and laboring in some of the same areas as you? That's called symposia. That's the Greek term, getting together and having some drinks. That's what it meant. It means with drinks. Get together, have some wine, and, or whatever, tea, and that's what I have. And, and talk. It's interesting, but when you do that kind of work, you find yourself refreshed. Think about the things that you do that may engage you fully as a human being, but end up refreshing you at the end. That's what you worship. That's what you celebrate. That's what you admire. That's what you venerate. Uh, the tradition of this kind of thinking says that we are not at leisure in order that we can be at leisure. In other words, um, we have to work. We have to provide for our family. And those things can be very meaningful too. But we are looking for the times when we can gather around the table for a couple of hours, enjoy a good meal, have conversation, play great music, listen to great music, talk about art, talk about mathematics and history. All the work that we've been doing finds its fruit in a kind of celebratory conversation and exploration and reflection that we have in these times of leisure. The, the tradition says that the arts are liberal arts. They're, they're liberating arts. They're free arts because only the person who had free time could pursue the arts. The rest of us had to go out and fix our wagons and, and mow the lawn and paint and everything else that's necessary for, an, for a good life. That has to happen too. But we also need to find liberated time where we can pursue the kinds of arts that cultivate our humanity that will have all kinds of implications but aren't immediately useful. Studying geometry, studying a language, studying logic, studying history. What kind of a job is that going to get you? How's that going to help pay the bills? What are you going to do with that major? Well, you know what? Part of what we're after, maybe the major part of what we're after, 
is nourishing and cultivating a soul. And we don't know exactly what geometry is going to do for this child. But he is going to understand spatial relationship in God's world. And he's going to see the beauty of various formula that mimic the mind of God. And where would that take him? It might make him an engineer, but you know, he might be an English teacher. Will geometry have cultivated his soul? Will it have given him insight in order to have conversation, reflection, and to be able to venerate and admire God's creation in new and profound ways? Sure. Do we model, therefore, being at leisure? Um, you may have heard of the word amusement, and you may have heard of the word muse. Musica, the, the old word muse means to be inspired by the muses, and music has that kind of root in it, because music still can be inspirational to us. We sense that. Um, ah, musia meant to be to lack inspiration, to be idle, to be bored, to be listless and drifting. We get the word amusement from that. When we don't have something that, uh, that, that grabs us at the deeper levels of our humanity, we look for amusement. The trivial chewing gum of the eyes, which is our television set. That's what we do. We don't want mere amusement. Now, do we want entertainment? Uh, to, to look at the root of that word is interesting because the etymology of that word is a little bit more inspiring than amusement. To be entertained means to be held. It means to be captivated. So when you're truly entertained, you lose sense of space and time, and you're just there, and you experience that kind of transcendence of yourself. You've been there. You've heard a sermon say where you forgot where you were, and time passed, uh, just slipped by, and you didn't, you didn't, it almost it's as if it stopped. Um, that's the true root of being entertained. And can we bring back that kind of entertainment to our kids where they occasionally lose sense of time and place because they are captivated and caught up with something that is beautiful and so fulfilling and purposeful to who they are as image bearers. That happens often when we are festive, when we enjoy celebration and leisure. When we can rest. And you know, the tradition says that this is not, that leisure is not the absence of work. It's a different kind of work. It's not the ratio, which is very important. It's the intellectus that is that receptive part of our minds that wants to gaze, receive, take it in, own it. You know, when you're looking at something beautiful in nature like a sunset or, or, or a green forest and it hurts because you want to put it into your breast or your pocket and you can't. And as C.S. Lewis says, there's a, kind of, um, there's a kind of divine longing that's greater than any human satisfaction. And it's when you're in the midst of these higher things the great meal, the great friendship, the great art, the beauty of nature, the beauty of geometry, that you experience longing, pain, that is more satisfying than any other human satisfaction. It's a kind of paradox. Because we know we were made to, to breathe in the sunset, and because we're fallen, we can't quite do it. These are the higher things. And you've experienced them at some level and you know them. We need to recapture them and we need to tease them out. That's why beauty, goodness, and truth need to be paramount in what it is that we are seeking.
Have you ever stood in front of one of those posters that makes no sense until you cross your eyes and look at it for about two or three minutes? And then suddenly a 3D image pops out, grabs you. We are around things that are beautiful in terms of ideas, in terms of images, in terms of people, and we can't see it. We're blind to it because we're running to and fro because we're, we're too much ratio and not enough, not enough intellectus. And somehow we need to enable ourselves and our students to stand in front of beauty long enough that it jumps out at us and we see it. Part of what being a teacher is, is to help our students to see what they cannot see. Jesus in Luke 6 talks about the blind guys leading the blind and then leading them into a pit. And it's right after that he says, but a student when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Because a teacher is not blind. A teacher has seen and will stop at nothing to help the students and the children to see as well. And that takes time. And there's no, it's an art, it's not a formula. The Latin word ludus is our word for school. It means play. We get the word ludicrous from ludus. School from the Latin gives us the sense of play. School from scole, the Greek, gives us a sense of leisure. There, there is, in the, the root of, of education, it's always been understood to include leisure and to include play. And you know that young children often learn while they're playing. And they are at leisure. When you have taught them history, and you have taught them a language, and you have taught them a scripture and so forth, and you give them free time, what do they do? They act it out. They dramatize it. They embody what they have done with ratio in their intellectus. And they begin to gaze at it and think about it and play with it. Do we encourage that? Uh, what's happening when your children play and they have free time is the high stuff. It's, it's what they're longing for. And they can even instruct us in the way that they play. Do we still play? Do we read and think and reflect and work and then also play? Is there a ludus in your home? So it brings us back to the question, and forgive me again for waxing philosophical, but uh, the question of what is a human for? What are your human beings that you call your sons and daughters for in God's economy? What Are they to be workers primarily, or are they to be image bearers who love the beautiful, the good, and the true, and are also celebrants of that? I mean, I'm losing people fast. I guess I need to get practical really quickly. Augustine said that the purpose of education is to teach our children to love what is lovely. Of course, I'm talking about the foundational principles here. There's a lot of practical stuff that does need to be considered. But at the root, education is a formation of a human soul, and it is teaching children to love that which is lovely. So, do we love that? What is, what, what is lovely? What is the beautiful? Have we even thought about that? Do we think of our subjects as having beauty and teaching them to love what is lovely, to order their loves and their passions? 
And another part of this tradition says that education only occurs in community and we learn nothing alone. We go nowhere alone. C.S. Lewis echoed that in his writings. We go nowhere alone. It's communal. Friendship also brings lightness and joy. Are we pursuing friendships? Are we ensuring that our relationships are, are ones of, of mutual interpenetration, burden-bearing, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice? Uh, is there friendship in your family? Beyond the work, are you pursuing friendships? Are you finding the time to be alone with your children and take them out for dates and have discussions with them one-on-one? -on -one? Are we taking walks with them? Are we providing the space in which the, the, the more profound conversations can occur? And with each child, it may be different. When that time, when that teachable moment comes, when that moment of profound interchange it comes, you can't just create it at 10 o'clock in the morning at your kitchen table. And John, now we're going to have a talk about what's really important to you. What are you really dreaming about? And what do you, you know, it may not happen at 10 in the morning. He's thinking about catching snakes or whatever it may be. With my son, it would be at bedtime, up till he was 13. And uh, I might be tired and thinking, I need to hit the sack, I need to do this, I've got to do dishes, I've got to take care of you know, a number of, one of a dozen things. And Noah says, Dad, what's the difference between lust and love? Am I going to give him the 30, 45 minutes that are necessary at that moment? Or I'm going to say, why don't we talk about that tomorrow at 10 a.m. at the kitchen table? <laughs> Your sister's there and so on. Uh, we, we, we. So this is an art, and it, it takes time. Um, and it, it's, it's hard. Uh, you are making so many sacrifices. It, it, you know, it makes someone like me almost want to weep to know the sacrifices that you are making as families. And to say to you, you have to do more, you have to do more, that's not what I want to say to you. I really almost want to say you need to do less and make sure that you're pursuing these kinds of times with your children and with one another. Um, one of the most profound things we do as teachers is model. We model a love for learning. We model celebration. We model these higher things, don't we? And they catch it more than we can really teach it. I can't teach you this in a seminar. I can just try to inspire you and prod you to think about this yourselves. And what's, going to, what's really going to make leisure and joy and lightness of heart and contemplation, to use these philosophical terms, happen in your home is you have to own it and begin to model it and your kids will absorb it. You're not going to sit them down at 10 o'clock at the kitchen table and say, we're going to be pursuing the Vita Compilativa. Uh, we're, going to pursuing, we're going to be pursuing Theoria, as Aristotle defined it. Uh, no, you will model it and they will, just, they will, they will begin to, to absorb it. Uh, but it takes some intentional time. It takes feasting and festival. It takes celebration. It takes time. You know the Proverbs, Proverbs 31 woman, right? You all are bodying that to some degree <laughs> just by choosing to do what you're doing. You know that it says that uh, you know, she's, she's busy about many things. She's respected at the, by the elders of the city gate. And she can laugh at the days to come. She can laugh. Can you laugh at the days to come? That will only happen if you also contemplate, sit at the feet of Christ. Uh, gaze at his, the beauty of his creation, the beauty of his church, 
the beauty of his word, the beauty of your own family, the beauty of the subjects that you are studying, which are all come from him and mimic his own mind. Uh, when you're pursuing the nourishment of your own soul, and you're doing that in partnership with your husband and with others in your church and in your homeschooling community, um, that's how it happens. It involves balance, of course. But can you laugh? Is there laughter in your homes? Uh, if you can't laugh, it probably means, I, I don't know this is a, I can say this is a certainty, but it probably means that you're not trusting, that you're not believing in the goodness of God, that God is good, and that despite the difficulties of your life, the challenges of them, we all have many, and they, they come and they go and they take various forms, but is God good? Is He going to take care of you like He takes care of the grass and the flowers of the field? Is He? Is He going to clothe you and feed you? give you your daily bread? Is he going to take care of your children? I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. Do you believe those things? Do you believe you've been redeemed and that Christ is with you and that he will be with you to the end of the age and that he has all authority on heaven and earth and that you are his and your children are his? Then you can laugh then you can have joy. The Galatians lost it. We can lose it too. We need to keep returning back to the fount, back to the source, which is love himself, which is our God and our Redeemer. Uh, we go nowhere without him. So these are the fundamental things. This is Christianity 101, right? These are the fundamental things that apply as time goes by. But this is exactly where we get the weakest. Is we forget the the first principles. So uh, education, therefore, is a life of constant repentance where we are confessing our anxiety and our worry and we are saying, I will love my children. Whatever else I do, I will love my wife and my husband and I will make time for them and so forth. And you have to apply that in your own life to know exactly what that means in specific terms. But faith, hope, and humility are all um, fundamental to the prospect of being able to laugh. Joy, Christian joy does not mean that you don't suffer. It just means that you have a hope and a confidence that transcends your, your, your circumstances at any moment. Okay. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said that uh, maybe some folks were waiting for these quotes and they didn't come soon enough because they were in the description of the talk, but it's, uh, he says this, a man should take his mission but not himself seriously. Um, what you're doing is a very serious enterprise. You are seeking to raise up your sons and daughters in a way that will honor God and prepare them for life in his kingdom and in this culture. And it's, it's a, it's, it takes a tremendous amount of effort and work and so forth. But because what you're doing is serious does not mean that you should take yourself seriously and fall into the trap of a kind of pride. Um, you should be light. He, Chesterton also says that the angels can fly because they take themselves lightly and that the devil fell by the force of gravity. 
so there should be an appropriate gravitas in what we're doing. What we're doing is serious. We are soldiers under command. That is true as well. But we walk with the King of Kings. We are secure. We can also have levitas. And I think that probably we've got the gravitas down. We're being criticized all the time for what we're doing. We have to defend ourselves and so forth. But we should also have levitas. We should be able to laugh at the days to come. Chesterton also says that the thing which is fundamentally and really frivolous is a careless solemnity. Um, you know, frivolity is the things that are light and frothy and don't, and don't really matter. And he says when you're careless in your seriousness, you're being frivolous. You're not understanding what is real. Here's another problem that saps us from joy and light and, 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 and uh, lightheartedness and levity. We are so wrapped up in what our children will be, become. Our love for them turns into a commentary on our own identity. And your children are not about you. You are about your children. And I know this is very, very hard for all of us. It's hard for me. How can I not well up with pride when I see my children growing and maturing and succeeding in various ways? There's an appropriate place to celebrate that. But when I take that additional dangerous step and say, my, what a good dad am I. Uh, that is a virtue being pushed into a vice by incipient pride, insidious pride. We need to fight against pride. And we need to say, what do I have that I have not also received and been given? What does my son have that he has not also been given? Um, yes, he is responsible to, 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 to use his gifts appropriately and faithfully and so forth. But God is always present, giving the gifts, giving the grace, giving the strength, and, and giving you the same in order to help. We go nowhere alone. So remember that your son and daughter belong primarily to his or her creator and redeemer. And you are the stewards of them. But you don't own them. They belong primarily to God. They've been purchased by His blood. And in one sense, even though you're a father to them, you are also a brother and a sister to them. And these things are subtle, but they have to be worked out. And you know the way it can, it can how, how, how satisfaction and celebration can turn into pride. I'm going to read to you a couple of quotations and then I'm going to stop and we're going to have some conversation and this, that's when it should get interesting. Um, this is Pieper talking about what it means to pursue a life of leisure. Against the exclusiveness of the paradigm of work as activity, first of all, there is leisure as non-activity, an inner absence of preoccupation, 
a calm, an ability to let things go, to be quiet. Leisure is a form of that stillness that is the necessary preparation for accepting reality. Only the person who is still, only the person who is still can hear, and whoever is not still cannot hear. Such stillness as this is not mere soundlessness or a dead muteness. It means rather that the soul's power as real of responding to the real is a co-respondence eternally established in nature has not yet descended into words. Leisure is the disposition of receptive understanding, of contemplative beholding, and immersion in the real. And one more. This is the distinction between the discursive mind and the receptive mind. The medievals distinguished between the intellect as ratio and the intellect as intellectus. Ratio is the power of discursive thought, of searching and researching, abstracting, refining and concluding, whereas intellectus refers to the ability of simply looking. It's related to the word intuitus. We get the word intuit, intu intuition from that, a seeing, to which the truth presents itself as a landscape, presents itself to the eye. The spiritual knowing power of the human mind, as the ancients understood it, is really two things in one, ratio and intellectus. All-knowing involves both. The path of discursive reasoning is accompanying and, and penetrated by the intellectus untiring vision, which is not active but passive, or better, receptive, a receptively operating power of the intellect. That's part of our tradition in the church. That's the philosophy. What is the practice? How does this become practiced and embodied in your homes? How can you be both a ratio and an intellectus? How can you both uh, work so that you can be at leisure? How can you pursue that different kind of work which we call leisure? Now you should hopefully see that leisure is not going on vacation. Leisure is school. Leisure is skole. And school is also ludus, play. All right. We thinned the ranks a bit. Some of you said, uh, I'll stay for this. Maybe there is something to this crazy philosophy of skole. But it's only going to be meaningful if we can connect this philosophy to practice and make it live and breathe in our homes. Some of you, without having studied the philosophy, have already discovered this. Okay, I may have just given you some new vocabulary and history for it, but you are nodding your heads, I know this, I've learned this, because it's not something that is esoteric, it's part of human experience. We might just acquire a new vocabulary because there is a tradition of thinking about these matters. And some of you have been working at this, and I know none of us have acquired perfection, but you've come up with some some helpful ways of trying to achieve this kind of balance. And we need to hear it. Now I have a list of some things here. And I'm just going to go through them really quickly. And then you're going to talk. Um, here's, what, here's what some people have been telling me. Nature walks. Getting outside. I heard this again and again in this post. We get outside. And something happens when we start getting out into nature and walking. You're in a different space. 
there is still truth coming to you because truth is communicated. The, the, the heavens speak. Psalm 19 makes that quite clear. And we're in the midst of a different kind of book, the book of nature, and it's speaking. But it's coming to us through our five senses. And it's some, somewhat inarticulable, right? To describe the beauty of being outside, I can, we can use words, but there's something that you absorb when you're in the midst of beauty, when you're in nature, that you cannot put into words. Um, so people are saying that over and over again. We get outside and things happen. We relax. We celebrate. We talk. We reflect. We sing. Other things happen when we're outside. So are we getting outside? Um, reading for enjoyment rather than just getting the school work done. Uh, there's a time uh, people are reporting when it's, we just need to read things that make, that, that, that create joy and, and laughter and pleasure. Um, uh, one woman said, I, we make a tent inside our living room and we read our favorite poems to one another. Um, silliness came up. That there's a time, in other words, I think what, what this woman meant, this mother said, essentially I am joining the play of my children. Uh, dads do this kind of naturally when they come home from work and their sons attack them and want to wrestle and uh, suddenly we are playing pirates or, you know, uh, or, or cowboys or we're, we're doing martial arts or whatever it might be, whatever, we're, whatever story is becoming reenacted. It could be David and Goliath. It could be virtually anything. But uh, I know that I start to play when I'm around kids that are about seven or eight and, uh, and younger. Uh, and it brings out the little boy in me that's never really gone away. And sometimes, uh, you know, in privacy of my own home, it's easy to do that. If one of you were present in my living room, uh, you know, and I took out my play sword and said, Aha! Touche! Come at me! Ah, you're no good! Ah, ah, beware! You know, maybe I wouldn't do that. Uh, but we do need to engage in what you might call silliness to, to play with our children. I'm sure you're going to have some insights there. Celebration comes up. I've mentioned this already. Dinners. I mean, I, I've already alluded to this, but you know what my favorite thing to do as a human being is? It's to have great meals with great friends. I would rather do nothing else than that. People I love and know, to be in a great place, great space, with time, with really good food, and maybe to be a part of preparing it together. In my early marriage, my wife and I would do a lot of, we'd we loved to cook together. Three months later, my wife was pregnant and we had Zoe. Uh, and it doesn't happen as much as it does. Uh, but now that the kids are older, we're preparing meals together. And the kids sometimes are preparing meals for the family. And wonderful things happen. There's all kinds of richness that comes. The metaphor of a meal and being at a table together, the, the recipe, the tradition, the local ingredients, the creativity, the, the beauty of the presentation, the art of actually preparing it, the conversation that occurs at the table, the civilization, the, the civilizing that occurs, the courtesy, the manners, the weeping, the praying, uh, all happens at our table. And that's where I want to be. I want to be at the table most of the time. Have you ever sat down to a meal that was so good that when you took the first bite, you started to laugh? Have you ever had a meal that's that good? Or you just, you just had to stop? You couldn't talk anymore? Because something was happening here that you just had to use your intellectus for a moment and receive it, gaze it, take it in, think about it. What am I tasting here? What are these flavors that are merging on my tongue? Um, that's leisure. That's scole. And then to have someone to, to someone nearby that you can praise, you know, you can praise it to. I mean, we love what what is praise when there isn't someone else to share it with. 
You know, if I'm having the best Italian meal I've ever had and I'm having it alone, it's only half is it's it's, it's not good. It's, I don't know that it can be good unless someone I care about is there with me. I can say, have you tasted this? Can you taste the garlic in there and so forth? Uh, we want to praise. We're made to praise the goodness of God. We, we realize our humanity when we as human beings are praising our Creator. That's built into us. We do make culture. We need cult. We need to worship. We need to admire. We need to celebrate. And we need to do this in our homes. And women are saying this. So maybe your kitchen table is the most profound place that education can occur. Yeah. All right, I'll stop with that. You talk, and you'll, you'll share some things, and I'll have to repeat it in the microphone so that everyone can hear, but uh, how do you find scole, leisure in your learning? We have about 17 minutes, so. Yes, in the back. So she's saying that her daughter, uh, although she's a lot like you and mimics you in some ways, you're seeing a kind of depth that she's acquiring that you didn't acquire in your own education and that she's beginning to share that with you. So this is something that happens as you know, Jesus says, a, t a student when, when he's been fully trained becomes like his teacher. And there becomes a time, especially with our high schoolers, when they start becoming peers. Right? And then there becomes a time when they actually start to know things that we don't know. And they begin to acquire some of their own wisdom insight. And they begin to share it with us. Is that a cause for celebration or not? I mean, isn't that what you're hoping for? <laughs> now your pride may kick in and say, well, wait a minute. But I know something that you don't know. Uh, but no, we, we're glad. We should be glad to see our children surpass us. Let them be fully trained and let them become a teacher. That's excellent. Others. How do you bring about scole in your homes? What are some practical things that you do? Yes? We do poetry. Hmm. Into kind of the highlight of our entire 
entire time together. And it's going to go on for years and years and years. It's mm-hmm. going to have this memory Excellent. What she's sharing is that uh, she's uh, discovered poetry as a family and they've begun to memorize poems and that her, her children have memorized uh, up to 40 poems and that once that's become a part of their inner framework, it starts to find expression in all kinds of ways. They begin to act out these poems, they begin to recite these poems, they recite them in parts or they kind of do a call and response with the poems. And I'm sure it, uh, what happens is when you put beauty into your child via memorization. That me- what, what memorization requires is contemplation. Or even if you memorize it without contemplating it, once it's there, you can contemplate on it. And of course that's why we memorize scripture. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Paul tells us to meditate on those things that are excellent and beautiful and worthy of praise in Philippians, right? So when you put scripture, when you put poetry and great literature into the, the hearts and minds of your children, it starts to take root and grow, and it will find expression in your dinner table conversation, in, in along the way, and so forth. And it's just, and they begin to play with it. They begin to play with it, and it becomes a part of their mental and spiritual framework. It's actually shaping their souls. That language you've put in them is becoming becoming them. So let's put in the most beautiful things. It's what's shaping them. That's an excellent illustration. Memorizing poetry and sharing it with one another. Others? Yes? Can you say that just a little bit more loudly? She said that they're, 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 they're bringing beauty into the context of the community, of their homeschooling community, including hymns, poetry, art. What else did you mention? Okay. Great. Uh, the, the classical tradition is always connected beauty and truth. So, but you don't have to be in the classical tradition to understand that, right? Uh, you love beauty, no matter what tradition you're looking to. Um, but is your home filled with beauty? Is there great artwork present? Uh, museum trips? Um, is there great music playing? You know, it's, it's amazing what music can do. And again, it's inarticulable. We can't quite put it into words. But, you know, how do you describe Beethoven's Fifth? fifth? Um, I'm always amazed when I hear very well-educated music critics talk about music because they can see things I can't see. They have a vocabulary, a trained ear and a vocabulary that I don't have. My wife is a poet and teaches poetry and when she talks about poetry sometimes I I can, and now I'm at the point after 20 years of marriage, I can usually understand what she's saying, but I know that I could never express myself the way that she, she can because she can just see things and hear things in poems that I can't and she can talk about them in ways that I can't. But uh, but bringing that into your home uh, is it's going to seep in and it's going to be somehow embodied. So, anybody else? Happy us in the back. Um, we have tea time. Tea time? Tell us about tea time.
saying that the sword and the tea can dwell together in a perfect <laughs> harmony. That's excellent. So she said that she pursues, she has tea time with her 15-year-old, 17-year-old sons, and that it's creating a kind of um, maturing in them, and a great bonding in between you and, and your sons, and also a great transition to from one subject to another, or one activity to another. When I first met my father-in-law, who is a federal prosecutor, uh, we sat down for yeah, he's a man's man. We sat down for lunch, and I ordered coffee, and he said to the server, I'll have tea. I'm a Christian. <laughs> so I, I know what it means to be among a family of tea drinkers. I, you'll see me in the Starbucks line, nonetheless. But uh, tea, he says, is the basis for Western civilization. <laughs> so you understand that insight. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Someone else had your hand up here. Yes. Excellent. 
She's saying that as her daughter is studying history, she's choosing, she's choosing to play with the history she's learning by uh, diagramming it or writing it out in the form of cartoons. So someone with artistic ability is going to want to express his or her uh, uh, newly found knowledge in graphical ways, which makes perfect sense. And that play is scole. Yeah. Sure, she, and that's because she's her own human being, and, and as you, as you bring all this wisdom and knowledge to her, she's going to wrap it up in her own personality and temperament. Yes. One of the things that we've we've done, uh, this is kind of school, kind of just personal. When you feel that winter will never be over in the middle of February, mm -hmm. we actually take the grill out and hamburgers, do beans, chips, spread a blanket on the floor in the middle of the living room, mm -hmm. and have a picnic. And it's just like, it's coming. <laughs> He's saying that they have a picnic in the middle of the winter, get the grill out, even if there's snow on the ground, and then have a picnic on their uh, living room floor, saying that spring is going to come. Great, so you're creating traditions, your own kind of festivals and festivities, your own feasts, your own celebrations. Uh, and they all are of a piece with what you're doing at the kitchen table, aren't they? They all flow out of that, they work together. So again, it's that ratio and the intellectus coming together. Yes, in the back, with the scarf on. Yes, you. Just speak loudly, because I won't hear you otherwise. Worship. Wonderful. Uh, was that a question or a comment? I still can't quite hear you. Yes. Um, right there in the, in the word culture is a reference to cult or worship. So as we're trying to build culture in our own homes and build culture generally, it involves worship. And of course, our Sunday corporate worship is, is important and profound and it centers our whole week and our lives. But the church has never said that worship should only be relegated or restricted to Sunday mornings or uh, formal church services. So we are the little church when we're at home. So in, including worship into what we're doing, and worship can be spontaneous, you know, it can be a part of the play when you break out. Um, so I think expanding our concept of what it means to worship is a part of this whole tradition we're talking about. But, but you know, in our family, every morning, uh, my wife is the one who really makes this happen and I'm very thankful to it. I wish I was a better leader in this regard than she is. But we take time every morning uh, to, to worship, to sing, to pray. And, and she always is reading about a paragraph or two from some book of importance. And we're reading through a book on prayer. And before we're out the door, we take about five or seven minutes. And, you know, it calms my kids. It does a lot of things. It, it calms us down. It centers us. We have a chance to make sure we're starting the day on the right foot. But we're also remembering our God as we go into the day. And, of course, then music. You know, if you're, some of your children are learning instruments, having them play, having them lead the family in worship, having them compose uh, poems and hymns and songs of their own to praise God. When my son was about four, we live in a cul-de-sac. And he still does this today. He scooters around this cul-de-sac and he's, he's playing imaginary games in his mind. He's conducting wars and campaigns and all kinds of things. I don't know what he always does, but he's going around for about an hour every day after a study uh, with his scooter. But when he was about four, he'd go around the cul-de-sac singing spontaneous praise songs to God. 
And the, the, the neighbors all think it's adorable, but he'd be you know, singing to the birds like St. Francis. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And to encourage that and to engender that and to celebrate that is, is just wonderful. We have time for just a couple more. Yes? Nature, animals, can quickly lead into the high things. Because, again, we're, we're exploring God's creation and interacting with it. So he's saying that his three-year-old son was crying because he hadn't looked up. The three-year-old daughter was crying because he had failed to look up the proper definition of a Texas longhorn. Because she wants to know. And she is, she is honoring her, her, her call as a, as, a, as, a, as a young human being who loves God. Yes? Foster puppies. And it has brought tremendous joy to my family. Mm-hmm. Not been in the last three years, but we did four about three years. Mm-hmm. And we did 75 that's lovely. She's saying that her family has adopted up to, fostered 75 puppies and then found homes for them and so forth. And she's made the comment that animals, again, created by God, cannot help but to engender joy and take you to different places. It's not just about the animals. Uh, it is about the animals, but it's about so much more. One more comment and we'll have to stop. Yes? The teen years can be very a very selfish time for the young people. And when all of our teens at the same time, we, we prayed for service opportunities. Mm. So if they would get out of themselves mm. and, and do the Lord's work somewhere else. And then you pray for that. And our community was hit by a flood a couple of years ago. Mm. And as soon as the, the water recited, we were able to go into the community. And so it could be babysitting, it could be chopping wood. It could be a hundred different things, but you have to be brave enough to close those textbooks and say, I'm going to go out and help someone. Yeah. You know, and of course the goal is a, is a meal together at mm-hmm. the end of whatever mm-hmm. chore that mm-hmm. is. But um, service will combat the, the selfishness and instill compassion in them and thankfulness. She's saying she's found opportunities to, to train her sons to do service, give opportunities to serve, and that that has made a great change and pulled them out of themselves and helped to combat the natural selfishness that we all fight. Thank you very much for coming, and, and I would once again just say, take a, take a look if you need to at Joseph Pieper's book if you want to go deeper into the tradition. Thank you, and have a great conference.